In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On Wednesday nights, we have uh, begun approaching once again the domain of God's presence, a domain which is boundless, a domain which nonetheless we often feel that we have somehow exited. We looked a little at Brother Lawrence. We're now entering uh, a study of the extent of God's reach in bringing those into his presence. And a concept which comes up again and again is that of the fear of God. What Rudolf Otto called in his book, The Holy God's uh, Mysterium Tremendum tremendum et Fascinans. This tremendous, powerful, and fascinating mystery. God's simultaneous push and pull. God's power and God's love. God's ability to draw us to him and yet to make us literally want to cower on the ground in fear to him, all at the same time. If you've ever read Kant's third critique, I'm sure you have. You'll see that the, the whole idea of the sublime is, is, is beautifully worked out in this. I noted of that that it, the sensation is that of an, the, the current in an electric, in our alternating current system oscillating back and forth. It's like a bell vibrating fiercely, this thing that God's presence arouses in us. This is what Luther would have called God's yes and God's no, heard together, the law and the gospel, things that he is always at pains to separate, nonetheless have a way of coming together. Come in, stay out, a wide embrace at the door, and a shove down the stairs all at the same time. And this is what we've heard in this morning's parable. Now, I use this to lead into rehearsing, re-rehearsing probably, the outlines of the traditional interpretation of this parable, and I have engaged this parable before and certainly proclaimed the traditional interpretation, and it goes like this. The kingdom is God. The king is God. The kingdom is the kingdom. The son is, of course, Jesus. And the wedding feast is that celebration whereby the faithful, whether by election or by choice, are received into the church, the feast of the bridegroom and his bride. Those on the first invitation list, that would be Israel, of course, they are in for a bad time. They see their city, Jerusalem, burnt, literally, in a few years. Those dragged in off the street, the Gentiles, the second list, are a mixed lot. They have not apparently been pre-approved, and even though they have exercised good choices in accepting the invite, one, there is always one, gets thrown out for refusing to observe the dress code. The rest are attired with Christ's righteousness, but this one is a rugged individualist. He'll do things his way, and he is summarily thrown into outer darkness, i.e., hell, a warning to us all. There, not so bad got through that pretty quickly, and I have avoided the next level into which I now enter, a giant pit which contains all sorts of controversies, pitting magisterial against radical reformers, and all of that against Rome. What we are left with is a father God who has little interest in progeny, 
natural or otherwise, great interests in exacting all kinds of retribution against those who are not his progeny, and for the rest of us, whoever they may be, the stern reminder that many are called but few are chosen, bringing doubt into our hearts and causing us to reflect that perhaps we are among the many the many who are self-deluded enough to imagine that they have somehow gotten themselves saved when only a few are really only going to make it through. That's usually where the church wants us to be, may I say. And when you uh, deliver this sermon, the result, paradoxically, of a kind of exhortation to moral seriousness, uh, it has rather the result has paradoxically the same result of any exhortation to moral seriousness, striving, and holy living, as if when the saints come marching in, one might yet have a chance to be of their number if one applies oneself now. And moral exhortation plays very well in the church. Great sermon, Pastor the browbeaten congregations say, as they always do when the law has gotten to us once again. I'll try harder this week, and so on and so on. It's a very good system. Moral exhortation is the name of the game, unless you're in an Anglican church which is discovering its Reformation tradition, that would be this church, in which case none of this is up to us, and all of this is up to God. Now listen, the guest list, the revised guest list, and the dress code, all of it up to God's sovereign election. Completely out of our hands, and there is nothing at all to be done by any of us about any of this, and therefore nothing at all of an ethical sort to be derived from reading this text, or expounding on it, or just pounding on it, as I have been doing. Now, that's the end of a second sermon. We don't get ourselves saved one way or the other, thanks very much, say Luther and Calvin, and the essence of our uh, consensus, at least, at the 17th century and beginning. We don't put ourselves on the invite list. We don't respond or not respond, at least voluntarily. We don't even pick out our own clothes or have our wife do it. Now, that's a way of putting it forward. And so what is the point now? The point is this. If you're on the other side, of course, you can offer a much better uh, interpretation of the parable. It's all about your choice, and therefore the preacher, like Jesus, with plenty of threats, tears, cajoling, stressing, and confessing, stirs up your free will so that you make that one good decision. And best for last, the thrust of the dress code seems to be that we are here to set an example to our neighbors as well, so kids start wearing a suit to church. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard this text actually preached that way in a Presbyterian church, nonetheless. (laughs) And there is a precedent to this, Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. And my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 
Now, if putting on a suit is going to bring all this to happen, I'm for it, and they're going to be sitting on the racks outside for you to put on as you come in the door. Maybe clothes do make the man, and that choice of clothing takes us right back to the beginning of our big story. Now, this is the big story, and it's a very simple story. There is a good God. He makes a very beautiful creation and puts human beings within it to take care of it. In the garden, we have no clothes and need none. Temperature must be well controlled, and I guess, well, righteousness, being in the family, does not require a dress code. It does not require clothes. Clothes come in when sin comes in. And when sin comes in and clothes come on, we get thrown out of the garden. We do not seek to get back in either. We run and have been running to this day away from those guardian spirits who keep us from getting back. Yet God still loves us. So he expends himself over time and space to track us down and turn us around. He calls us, invites us, and again and again, he is rejected by us. This is the story of salvation. It is still going on. Day after day, the call goes out. The king, kingdom is coming, and so is the king. Come into the kingdom which is coming to you. Come in, come, come to the feast. The feast. Now there is an image. Eat of my fattened calf. Drink of my best wine. And let me throw around your shoulders my robe. My royal robe trimmed with ermine. So that my humiliation in running to embrace you as you run to me will cover your disgrace. This is the father of the prodigal son setting his table, his banquet, opening his arms in this cosmic embrace. All of time, all of creation is converging on this moment. Let's go right back to Solomon, Proverbs, the inspired wisdom that he culled from the nations. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. And the word goes out. The word goes out, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight, wisdom, understanding, forgiveness, like a wide embrace. Even more expansive, listen to Isaiah. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Listen to this now. Expanding, expanding this invitation for all peoples. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This is God's call. Those who wear their wedding garments, their baptismal gowns, their winding sheets, their shrouds, they're all the same garment, are those who in Christ have died and been raised. The way in which God reckons them now is not as those who have kept the law of Moses, 
but as those who have found, been given and received the faith of Abraham. We are Abraham's children, not Moses. We must never forget that. We are Abraham's children. Now, this is what is called, in the technical language, passive obedience, dying and being killed. When Christ goes to the cross and dies for us, that is the action which brings us our invitation into the kingdom. It's Calvin, I believe, who said that the creed should be reversed. We say Jesus died, was buried, and descended into hell. Calvin said the death on the cross and the descent to hell were coterminous. They were happening at the same time. Now, where on earth am I going with this image of the cross, of passive obedience, following the way of Abraham, of faith and trust, and not the way of Moses, of active obedience, of trying to live out on our own the righteousness of Christ. Those in their shrouds, in their wedding garments, the garments that they have been given by their hosts when they arrive for the banquet, these are not the best clothes you pull out of your closet. Traditionally, that's the way we read it now. Come back in 15 years, but that's what we say now. They get the garments when they arrive at the host's house. He gives them what they're to wear. They don't bring it. It covers what they've already worn. So the one who barges in is determined that he's just going to be who he is. But those who have put these garments on and shrouded their identity have resigned themselves. The one who still flaunts his identity is the one who has resisted or had his heart hardened. Either way. And who knows? So, who was that unrobed man? For us magisterial reformers, I've suggested it can't really be us because we don't have the voice to accept or reject within us. It's God who puts us into that place when we are still dead in our sins. So who is that unrobed man? In the end, the best interpretation I have ever seen says that the unrobed man is Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes to the temple dressed as he is, wearing no fancy robes. Jesus has been hitting on the temple, remember. And now the temple hits back. He arouses the wrath of the temple. And now God, in his divine bit of conspiracy, God joins in for his own purposes with those who are purposing evil. And he's done it before. God, God takes his son and hurls his son into outer darkness, where in the utter humiliation of cross, tomb, and hell, his glorification and ours can be achieved. Where his creation, this earth restored, can be revealed in all its glory, and where he and we will rule together. I think this is a very traditional, untraditional interpretation. And I'm going to leave it at that. Amen.